Welcome to Q Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas, and we are your hosts for Q Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not the typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Q Talks, we are talking to Tim Breers, CEO of Evenetics. Evenetics is a synthetic biology company developing a desktop platform for scalable, high fidelity, and rapid gene synthesis. Hi, Tim. Thanks for coming on the show with us today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. If you can start with giving us an overview of your background, please. Yeah, be happy to. Um, So I'm originally a molecular biologist, though uh, I don't think you'd want me in the lab now. Uh, I did a a PhD and then a postdoc uh, in in the US, in fact, in New York for my postdoc before joining uh, Ciba Geige, which was later Novartis, still in the US, actually, North Carolina. Um, And I was there, my my role there was uh, as a liaison between uh, the research and commercial people within within CIBA. Uh, at the time, CIBA was introducing its first transgenic plants, GM corn, actually, that was corn borer resistant. So it was a very exciting time. And then in 1999, I came back to the UK to, to help establish a gene regulation company called Gendac, which was a spin out of the LMB, the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, actually uh, from the lab of the late uh, Aaron Klug. And the idea was to use zinc finger proteins to turn genes on and off. Uh, and that ran for, for a few years. The company was acquired by a West Coast company called Sangamo. Uh, and then I joined a company called Zentian or helped set up a company called Zentian that was developing small molecule drugs for the treatment of atrial fibrillation, which is obviously a cardiac condition. And these were ion channel modulators, uh, which were specific for the atria. And in both cases, we raised uh, a fair amount of capital. And then, of course, about three years ago, I joined Evenetics. Fantastic. Um, and since you've mentioned it, can you tell us what Evanetics is um, and where you have reached so far with it? Of course, yeah. So uh, as you'll be aware, Evanetics is, is again, again based in Cambridge. Uh, it's a, a gene synthesis company. Uh, but perhaps it's helpful to provide a little context. And, and the context is that uh, we're facing, uh, as a society, some huge challenges on the environmental front, the healthcare front, in food and in food in agriculture, uh, and it's clear that biology has got a key role to play in finding solutions to some of these problems. But the solutions, if they're going to be deployed broadly and, and deeply enough as required, all require, all need the synthesis of DNA and genes on a scale that's not currently possible. So our approach is to develop a radically different uh, technology for gene synthesis. It's about developing an integrated desktop platform to synthesize DNA, basically a desktop DNA writer, so a machine that would sit on your desktop in the lab. Uh, it will permit researchers to engineer biological systems with high accuracy, scale, and complexity, essentially allowing the rapid prototyping of genes and proteins to accelerate the evolution of new genes and pathways. Effectively, uh, making biological engineering as accessible and as widespread as next-generation sequencing has has to DNA sequencing over the past 15 to 20 years. And we think this will help unlock the power of biology to to, to address many of these most pressing needs that we're going to be facing over the next decades. 
So it's about changing how DNA is accessed, made, and used. Currently, DNA synthesis is done as a service. So our approach would effectively become a new paradigm for DNA synthesis. Now, just to say a little, if I, if I may, uh, about the technology itself. Uh, the technology is complex. It involves developing a silicon chip with many reaction sites, all of which are under independent control, actually thermal control, in a, sim in a single fluidic environment. And integrating this with the chemistry required for the synthesis and the molecular biology to assemble double-stranded DNA uh, in a process that, again, uses the thermal control of the chips. And so far, it's fair to say we've made great progress towards our technical objectives, our technical goals. Uh, and we've done this principally, I should say, by recruiting a hugely talented team across an array of areas of science who are working together very effectively. So we have physicists, software engineers, electronics and mechanical engineers, as well as chemists, surface chemists, synthetic organic chemists, molecular biologists and protein engineers, all bringing their expertise to bear on this problem. You've already mentioned the potential of biology for the listeners who don't have a background in biology. Can you maybe briefly explain what is synthetic biology? Yeah, so synthetic biology, which is, I think it's fair to say, a, a, a newly coined term, is really about the design and construction of novel genes, pathways, organisms, uh, perhaps the redesign of existing and natural biological systems brings together a range of disciplines and skills from biology and, biology and chemistry to computing, bioinformatics and engineering. So it generally assumes an element of scale and the, and the application of engineering-like techniques to solve biological problems through what you might call biodesign. So it's building on the advances in molecular, cellular and systems biology, and it's looking to transform biology in a way Uh, that synthesis perhaps transform chemistry, that integrated circuits perhaps transform computing. Uh, and the, el the element that, that, that distinguishes synthetic biology from traditional molecular and cellular biology is the focus on, on design and construction, uh, the idea that you can model, understand, and tune, tune systems to meet specific performance criteria. Now, unlike many other areas of engineering biology, at least on the surface, is incredibly nonlinear and unpredictable, principally due to the complexity of the interacting parts. So being able to understand what things do and how the parts interact in a mechanistic and hopefully predictable way is important and uh, will lead us uh, to have the ability to get the ability to, to design systems much more effectively. Uh, and the design, build, test, learn cycle is an important part of that. So fundamentally, uh, it's about having the ability to make DNA, to prototype DNA and proteins uh, encoded by that DNA. Uh, and this is where our technology fits in. So Tim, something that I'm wondering is, as a startup in the space, how do you fare compared to some of the bigger players? What is it that makes investors bet their money on you when perhaps the returns are way down the line for them? What we do is about innovation and getting the right people with the right experience and expertise to solve potentially very challenging problems. And often this can be done in a startup environment that's free from some of the constraints of existing, perhaps more mature business models. So what we're doing is about creating a disruptive technology that will hopefully leap, leapfrog more incremental approaches. And whereas the, the bigger players, the bigger companies are certainly very successful at things like scale up, market delivery, et cetera. And of course, they have substantial resources. Uh, but the business of developing a disruptive technology is risky. And so 
it's not something that all big companies really want to invest in. So in summary, I think startup efforts are often complementary to those of bigger, well-established players. Uh, and of course, you know, we're backed by uh, investors who understand that this is uh, not always going to be a linear path. Okay. And if I can uh, follow up to what you were saying, you mentioned uh, about different business models compared to those larger players. Can you elaborate on what some of those business models might look like for disruptive technologies such as yours? Well, of course, there are, there are, there are probably numerous models that, that, that one can anticipate. It depends a lot on uh, the, the partners you find, uh, the speed to market you may, you may achieve in the pharmaceutical in the pharmaceutical sector, some of that will depend upon your ability to, to move through clinical trials and the amount of capital you can raise. Having partnerships with the, with the right investors, uh, all, all these things vary and, uh, you know, will, will, you know, you'll need to, need to build your model depending upon your technology, the market you're looking at, uh, and the time to market, uh, and so on and so forth. And for you at Evenetics, what does, what does that look like? How does that picture come together? Well, for us, uh, for us, this is about developing our desktop DNA writer, uh, bringing it to the market within within two to three years' time, having the resources to do this, uh, the expertise to develop the technology, but also uh, the the internal expertise to handle product management, so that we have you know we we, we uh, it's not just about the technology; it's about that commercial angle as well, and you know delivering those things on the timelines we anticipate. Of course, you know we understand that there will be There'll be twists and turns on the way, uh, but for us, it's about bringing something to market within our expected timeframe. And, and then, of course, we have a, a plan for how that's going to be introduced, who the initial users of the technology will be, uh, a commercial model around our products and so on and so forth. How important are partnerships, maybe specifically to your company, but also maybe in the, in the sector you're in? And based on that, what are good practices of managing partnerships with some of the bigger organizations you're dealing with? Yeah, I mean, partnerships are always, always very important. Uh, we have actually a number of, a number of collaborations, both with, with industry and academia. Uh, and in every case, our experience has been positive. Uh, the success, I think, of these arrangements generally relies on each part party recognizing the strengths of the other and wanting to access those strengths and then work together in a collaborative manner because we recognize that we can't do everything ourselves, clearly. Uh, we need to do the things that we do best, which is developing, developing, um, developing our new approach and, and, uh, and bringing that product to market. But there are elements of that that we will work with other, other parties to achieve. So we have, for example, a partnership with IMEC, a world-leading uh, um, chip company, Uh, and of course, there and working together with them was a great opportunity. On the academic side, we have a partnership with Durham University on a particular project. That's actually a project that's funded by Innovate UK, and again, uh, that's operating with great success because each party brings something something different, and we're able to access that uh, as, as, as part of that process. So yeah, so so working together with other parties, the right parties, uh, is 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 an important part of, of what we do. If we take the conversation now more towards the entrepreneurial aspects of your journey, both 
at Evenetics and previously as you touched upon. Um, so if we first talk about funding, um, I believe you recently closed a $30 million Series B funding round. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners would be very interested to hear about the work behind the scenes that goes into building up towards uh, a large Series B funding round such as that. Um, maybe you can elaborate on the considerations that you had and some sort of unexpected factors that you might have come across during this process? Okay. Uh, well, like any, in any fundraising, it's important to be, to be prepared, to have a plan for what you're going to do with the money, uh, how you're going to spend the investor money, what milestones you, you're going to hit uh, over, o- over the period of that funding, of that funding round. And um, uh, you know, doing our Series B was 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 no different to that. We had, we needed a a well a well um, a well thought through plan on on what we're going to do, the technical milestones we're going to achieve, and also what that would then enable us to do in a subsequent Series C round. So the milestones we expect to hit that will enable a new investor to come in, saying, actually, you know, we we want to come in uh, at, at Series C. So 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 being well prepared, both having having a a good story to tell, a good technical story to tell, a good story to tell on the product management, product development, and, and commercial side is 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 is, is key. Um, and of course, knowing knowing the potential investors who you may want to speak to is, is very important. So, gathering some intelligence on the funds you may wish to approach, you know, knowing whether or not, in our case, they're interested in synthetic biology, what sort of investor are they likely to be? Are they going to be helpful in in uh, supportive will they add value through their experience through their corporate networks etc at what stage of their funding life cycle are they so for example you know some some funds may not be in new investment mode they may be supporting their in, uh, their existing companies so having a bit of intelligence on that up front uh, is is very helpful so that you don't waste time speaking to funds that would be unlikely to invest uh how much? How much will they invest? Will they lead an investment round? In other words, do they have the resources to to, to dig in and do the diligence, and ultimately, ultimately uh, give you a term sheet that you can that you can then consider? Uh, and are they likely to invest in future rounds, future investment rounds? We want our investors to come back in and invest in not only in in Series B but also Series Series C uh, and, and hopefully beyond. So these are all important considerations you need to you need to think about. Before you go out, but having having the story, the investment proposition uh, together, you know, pulled together in a coherent and professional manner is 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 is, is the first thing to do, I think. So, to our listeners um, who are actively thinking about their fundraising journey, how different is a Series B fundraising effort from, say, a Series A, and and how much effort does go into such a fundraising? Uh, initiative. So, in terms of time, who who deals with these things? Is that a CEO matter? How many people are involved? How can people who have very little idea at the moment think about the effort that goes into such a Series B fundraising process? Well, it's 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 normally the CEO that pulls together uh, pulls together uh, the materials that are required. But clearly, clearly, on the technical side, you want your your your. Your, your CTO or your, your 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 researchers to to be to be feeding into that process because it's all about ultimately telling a story and getting that story right and then it's a small team typically two or three people three or four people who who sit in front of prospective investors depending upon the size of your management 
uh, of your management team. Uh, things, things, how do things differ between Series A, Series B, and potentially Series C? Well, typically, a Series A will be smaller. A Series will be smaller than a Series B, and, and the Series C will be bigger than the, will be bigger than the Series B. So, so the investment rounds typically get larger. Uh, the more progressed the company is, because the greater the capital requirements, and typically as well, there's the Series A investors will be more interested in understanding the technology. Uh, that than will later investors who will um, instead be more interested in understanding the commercial plan. Because typically, later investors tend to invest larger sums of money, and you know they tend to be uh, less specialist, more generalist. So, depending upon what you're pitching for, uh, you know the, the, sto- the story may need may require some refinement. But typically, as I say, Series A there's a strong technical component. Uh, and, and it's important to have your, your technical team, your, 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 your CSO, CTO, et cetera, um, obviously uh, being a, an equal participant, a participant in those discussions. And as a Cambridge UK-based company, what has been your experience with bridging between the US and the UK, both in terms of um, operations, if you do so, and also in terms of funding? Um, and what have been maybe some of the reasons behind this approach? As I think it's quite a key question that founders go through is um, where they lay down their roots and where they um, sort of access various resources. Well, I mean, fundamentally, when you're, particularly when you're raising funds, you need to go where the money is. Uh, and there's no doubt that the U.S. has more available venture capital than Europe. Uh, but more importantly, the U.S., and especially California, has been at the vanguard of, of synthetic biology investing, which is clearly our area, both in terms of the number of deals and the dollars invested. So don't, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, there are some great U.K. investors uh, who've invested <coughs> in synthetic biology. Uh, we have, for example, Draper Esprit, one of the leading uh, European VCs. Um, and and there's some great science in 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 UK synthetic biology, but there still remains a difference in scale. So uh, b- between Europe and the US, and specifically California, uh, so that was for us that was a great place to go and start looking for funding as we as we went to raise our Series B. So ultimately, it is as I say about about yeah, I guess following the money as I say. And if I can just follow up on that, um, then if you're getting the majority of your funding from the US, but your base is in the UK, does do you find any potential conflicts that arise from that? Or um, is that quite um, an industry standard? I, I think in synthetic biology, it is uh, probably um, an industry standard. I don't, don't, I don't think I see any conflicts. I think uh, our US investors... As with our, our UK, UK investor investing in Evenetics, because it's uh, it's got great technology, it's a great company, and we're building the company in Cambridge with with local expertise and uh, local, obviously, local recruitment. So I don't think there's a conflict, and there's certainly no pressure to 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 move operations elsewhere. Um, ultimately, you know, when we are in our commercial uh, phase, then. You know, we'll need to look to see where the markets are, but certainly in terms of in terms of uh, building the company, there's no. Uh, you know, I think U.S. investor investing in U.K. companies because they're great companies to invest in. And and practically speaking, Tim, uh, how can we envision this happening? So we we talked to a lot of startups who are at a, at a much earlier stage than than you are. 
And, and for them, as Shreya mentioned, the decision is often, should we be based in the US or should we be based in the UK? And we understand a lot of investors from the US actually require some form of presence in the US. How does it look in your case? Uh, we haven't had any any pressure of that nature uh, at, at all from, from any of our, our US partners. Uh, and I think, as I say, it is about, you know, f- for them, they want us to be successful. So they want us to... Um, to be where it makes most sense for us to be to to build the company, and that is clearly in Cambridge. Uh, we have um, access to great human resources in the Cambridge area. We've been we've been very successful in recruiting since uh, going back to since raising our our Series A. Uh, we've we expanded then uh, up to about forty, and now we're expanding again following completion of our Series B. So, uh, and you know. It's being being in the Cambridge ecosystem that has been uh, has has led to that success in in expanding our team um, because there are great you know there's a lot of a lot of very talented local people with across you know from 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 the engineering side to the chemistry side to the biology side uh, and you know so 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 being where we are has been has 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 been a key a key component to the success and I think our investors completely understand that. That's great. And um, if we can perhaps take it more broadly now, um, thinking about your overall experiences as an entrepreneur, how has this differed between Evanetics and some of your earlier life sciences, life science ventures? Um, can you draw upon any insights from these that might be valuable to um, early founders of life science ventures of what you've learned along the way? Uh, yeah, well, I, I suppose... Uh... The, the first company I did, Gen, that was a gene regulation company, which effectively was a platform company. Uh, Zentian, of course, was a drug development company. Um, and, of course, Evenetics is now synthetic biology, might also go an enabling technology. Um, in all cases, it's about building a team with the right expertise, the right enthusiasm, in many cases, a willingness to be flexible in, in, in achieving goals. At the investor pitching level, I think the... Uh, Experience between Evanetics and Zentian has been has been a little different. Uh, Zentian was essentially a drug discovery and development play with a defined development path, target product profile, market expectation, importantly risk profile. And so the investors who invest in those sorts of drug development um, technologies are typically familiar with the discovery and development process. You know the cost of clinical trials, the risk of failure the risk at each step of the process, really, and the increment in value that mitigating or overcoming those risks uh, will, 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 will lead to. By contrast, in, in synthetic biology, it's more of an enabling technology, clearly, has huge, huge potential across numerous segments, uh, but to define its impact with specific numbers is quite difficult. So, so, so you're talking to uh, different types of investor who, who sort of, um, you know, view that rather differently, I would say. Uh, so you end up uh, talking to different investors, uh, and this is you know one of the reasons we end up uh, talking to a number of West Coast investors because they, uh, I, I think, have a very broad view of the applicability of synthetic biology and the potential success. Um, so yeah, I think it has been the, the experiences between those companies has been has been slightly different. So continuing the theme of reflecting. Uh, back onto your experiences. Um, we understand you did a PhD 
and you then embarked on an MBA and and maybe um to to ask based on these experiences if we have a PhD student here in Cambridge and and he or she is wondering what next what would be some of your recommendations oh gosh that's a that's a tricky one because of course um you know i i was doing this quite a few years ago um but i would say if you if if a if a a student graduating with a PhD is unlikely to want to pursue a research career either in academia or in industrial research, then it would be important to gain some broader experience outside of research, whatever that may be. I mean, I was very lucky in, in Sibagaygi, Novartis, where I was exposed to the interface between research and the commercial world, including intellectual property management. So I consider myself to have been extremely fortunate in that respect. Uh, Getting into that sort of situation uh, is helpful. And I always thought that being in a big company uh, like a CBIG or Novartis, as, as it became, was actually a great place to learn stuff because there's lots of lots of you know lots of departments, people going on there. And if you can connect with those people, uh, you can get exposure to areas that you would not uh, normally get exposure to. So I, so I think that for me was uh, was was very helpful. But basically. I think my, uh, I guess my only advice would be to get some broader experience outside of research, whatever that may be. So this has been a great conversation, Tim. And if we can maybe ask you one final question, um, which is what do you see as the potential of synthetic biology by, say, 2050? Oh, gosh, that is a, <clears throat> that's, that's a tricky one. I think, I think it's fair to say that there's, a, there's, there's now a broad consensus that synthetic biology is poised to deliver a wide range of new products and services to disrupt industries from agriculture, pharmaceuticals, renewables, industrial biotech. It will really present us with the opportunity to exploit biology as never before. Um, and I think as the Royal Society said a couple of years ago in its report on synthetic biology, it could be fundamental to helping us manage the Earth's resources. Uh, the UK government has set a target, as I'm sure you're aware, of net zero emissions by 2050. And I expect that synthetic biology, which is which is the date you mentioned, I expect that synthetic biology will be making a significant contribution to achieving that by reducing our reliance on petroleum, uh, using biology and biological products and processes, many, many more products and materials than we currently might even imagine. But also, I think on the health on, on the on, on the healthcare side, Symbio will, will provide a significant contribution, offering tools on a scale and with accuracy not currently possible. So hopefully giving us the ability to respond quickly to future crises such as such as the current COVID crisis uh, we, we, you know, we find ourselves in. So it's about, it's about that broad applicability in agriculture as well. We have an expanding world population from 7.8 to 11 billion over the coming decades. Uh, synthetic biology can have a very significant impact there as well by creating new New, new plant genetics, animal genetics, new fertilizers that uh, will help to, to, to uh, create or, or help to produce foods on a, on a sustainable fashion that's uh, you know, in, in a, at a scale that's not currently possible. So across a variety of sectors by 5050, uh, I expect synthetic biology to be making a substantial impact. Now, for all the listeners who maybe do not have a, a biology background, maybe they are a school leaver, then they're thinking about a, a, a career or, or maybe a degree, or maybe even students who are already in, embarked in, in a course but are thinking about 
shifting to synthetic biology given its potential, what would you advise are good entry points to to make a start in synthetic biology? Well, I think you have to. I mean, I think uh, the, I think there are many entry points because of because of the the broad. Uh, uh, all-encompassing nature of the technologies being developed, contributing to the field from from engineering uh, to uh, to chemistry, to biology, molecular biology, and so on and so forth. So, I think uh, I think there are many opportunities to enter the field. I would say. And and are there any you could particularly recommend for for someone who's 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 keen to get started in the field? I'm, I'm rather biased. I would say yes. Start with start with molecular biology and uh, and and go from there. Nice. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Tim. Well, thank you. Thanks very much for joining us, Tim. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks very much again to Tim for joining us on QTalks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who have all been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. QTech.